0: Right, we're looking at the Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and uh, we come to verse 42 today and uh, to the phrase, they devoted themselves to prayer. All right, Acts two forty-two. this is the fourth and final mark of a, a real church. Uh, a real church, firstly, uh, attends to the preaching and the apostles' writings in the, in the scriptures and uh, doing that. And secondly, uh, uh, a real church has vital fellowship with one another, supports one another, loves one another, counsels one another, bears one another's burdens, and so on. And thirdly, uh, a gospel church is known because it meets and breaks bread together, it celebrates the Lord's Supper. And fourthly then, uh, a true church is a praying church. And it does this because it follows the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus told us we should always pray and not give up, not faint. Jehovah Jesus himself prayed. And that's a staggering truth because if there was anyone who had no need to pray, it was him. He was the incarnation of omnipotence. He had power over men, power over demons, power over creation, over disease, over death. What need did he have to pray? But we discover that he prayed often, and that he uh, prayed aloud. There are numbers of examples of this in the Gospels, so many that I tend to think that he always prayed aloud. Not only when the Greeks came to him, or in the upper room, or in Gethsemane, or on the cross, but generally he prayed aloud. And that's why we have so many records of what he prayed that have been preserved for us by the four evangelists. And that's one of the reasons why he needed to get up early in the morning and get away from his sleeping disciples, that he wouldn't disturb them, And he could go and he could pray then in the early hours of the morning for them. So on one occasion, he had finished praying and one of the disciples had been listening to him and was obviously enormously moved by hearing how Jesus could talk to God. And he said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And there, there must have been such a longing in that request, such deep sincerity, it's such a feeling I've never really prayed. And oh, how wonderfully you can pray, teach us to pray. Yeah. Will I ever pray like that? Have I ever prayed at all? And this man had tried. And they all had tried to pray in those years before Pentecost, and it wasn't easy. So he said, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Why should we lag behind John the Baptist's disciples? So please teach us. You can ask the Lord Jesus to help you in anything, you can go to him, and uh, things that seem Quite remote from being a Christian. Um, When you failed your driving test for the third time, like a grandson of mine has, he's praying, Lord, teach me to drive a car so that I can pass my driving test. We pray about being a real Christian, about being a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell me why did you have to die on the cross? He will respond to you because you're loved by him. You're a Christian. You're his child. And so he listened to you when you speak to him. I'm so glad that uh, the disciples asked this question because in teaching him how to pray, he's taught us. There'd be a congregation 2,000 years later and they'd all be helped by the question and the answer that this man had. If you're in our prayer meeting on a Tuesday night, and you've never prayed before, then if you simply say one night, very nervously, Lord, teach me how to pray. We all say, Amen. Because all of us feel just as inadequate in our praying, particularly... Publicly, but privately too, as you feel. There was a, a minister in the Friday morning prayer meeting uh, a little while ago. And as he was praying, he said, Oh all teach us to pray. I don't think he was conscious that he was quoting the words of this disciple that asked Jesus how he could pray. But uh, it just, there were many other good things he said. That, that phrase really struck me because he seems to me to be a man of prayer. You, 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 you say, I have problems with praying. Praying is the most difficult thing in the world. If you want to humble someone, when I was in Korea, they arranged for a, a reporter to come and talk to me. So he asked me, Any questions? He said, how many times have you read the Bible all the way through? Well, that was really a humiliating question. I said, I didn't know, and I don't know. And not enough. That's certainly the case. Young ministers say to me about my praying. How often, how long, when? it's a disaster zone only christians feel how disastrous their praying is they alone go to god and tell god lord oh i teach me how to pray please i'm such a poor prayer world doesn't know that the world says the morning i wake up before i put on my makeup I say a little prayer for you. It's a great tune. It's prophetic words, isn't it? <clears throat> this woman has no problem with praying. She, she knows all about praying. She can say a little prayer. Muslims, they have no problem knowing how to pray. They're firmly instructed when to pray. Five occasions on the day, the times. What sentences to repeat. What direction to face when they pray. Their posture how to prostrate themselves, uh, their heads touching the ground, their shoes off, and so on. They are sure that there is one thing they know about, and that is how we are to pray. They know it. They don't go to Allah and say, Allah teach us to pray. They know everything about prayer. Orthodox Jews are just the same. You see the you see them in Heathrow waiting for the plane to take them to Israel and they see one another and they go and they've got some compass mechanism of where is Jerusalem and there they are. they pray. They know how to pray. Buddhist monks in Tibet, they know how to pray, don't they? The one thing that characterizes every religion, every carnal religion is a certainty about prayer. How to pray. The Roman Catholics know they're Pater Gnosters. They know they're Ave Marias. They all know about praying. With Christians, it is totally different. We are humbled if we are asked about our praying. We often feel we don't know what to pray for, as we ought. A great apostle said those words. And so we say what that old minister said. Teach us to pray. Because prayer is impotence, Grasping at omnipotence. It is the adoration of a being of unsurpassing glory and grandeur. And yet it's talking to him as our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Oh yes, exalted. The greatest being that there is. And we talk to him. And we talk to him about things that we talk to our wives about and our husbands about and our daddy and mummy, and we talk to them. And we talk to God about the things, about exams and the bullies on the school bus and help when we don't feel well. He is so holy and he's so great and we're so insignificant and bad. And we don't talk to him by repeating phrases then. We're saying, so this is 11 o'clock and I pray this prayer and at 1 o'clock I pray this prayer and 5 and so on. It's not like that at all. Jesus warns us about vain, empty petitions. Just repeating and repeating things. That's not prayer. You go to Jehovah Jesus and so often you say, Lord, here I am again. My mind's going to wander. Um, Please teach me to pray. So, um, have you done that? Do you know what prayer is? I'll tell you what prayer is. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. I didn't make that up. That's the Shorter catechisms, definition of what prayer is. so here is Pentecost, and here we are. we're discovering what Christianity is by going back to the very beginning and seeing what did the first Christians do? How did they live? What did they believe? And there were 3,000 men there, and they were all new Christians, and they'd always prayed.) <laughs> Not a day had gone by, these religious people who came from Cappadocia and Bithynia and the regions around Rome and Libya and Cyprus, and they all had come for the feast, and they'd come and heard a preacher, a young fisherman with a Galilean accent, with such authority given to him, such energy, and uh, God dealt with them by the word of God. And uh, they came under conviction of their need of forgiveness and their need of repentance. And then they learned one great lesson. They had never prayed in their lives at all until then. They'd said prayers. But not until you, you know God as your Lord and Savior. Not till then do you know how to pray. And then they joined a church. Uh, it's teaching, it's fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And it was part of the meetings they went to. Like we pray um, in, in this meeting. Four times that so we pray at the beginning. Pray the pastoral prayer. Pray for God's blessing on the sermon at the end. And then pray the benediction at the end. And it's part. It's uh, the atmosphere in which we live is one. God is here. And God is listening. And God must help us, everyone. And that's what they did. They continued in in such an atmosphere. And the Bible tells us how. How we are able to speak to the one who dwells in eternity, whose name is holy. And when we speak to him, God hears us. The God who designed the Milky Way and the galaxies of space in all its unimaginable vastness, that God we call our Father. And He hears us when we pray to Him. And things change. We change. And our circumstances change. God changes things through our praying, like He changes things through how you live, and what you say, and through preaching, and evangelism, and the bookshop and Llieste and uh, the Christian Union and uh, what we do in the name of Jesus Christ. And we say, Lord, oh, do bless this now because nothing is going to come of it unless you smile on it and send your spirit on these activities. So... Um, He tells us how to pray. Now, He gives us the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at that. I read it to you in Matthew 6. But if you came and you said the Lord's Prayer, and I read it to you and then dismissed you, that that wouldn't help you, would it? If I read to you um, the letter to the Philippians and then said, now you can all go home. You want more than... Hearing the very words of God, you want that word really laid on you, on your understanding, on your conscience, on your affections. And that's what you want. You want the pathos of the truths that you're hearing to stir you and move you. And that's why we preach the Word of God. I knew the Lord's Prayer. I can't remember when I first said it, but we always started the day. When I went to junior school, Abel Junior School, um, the first thing the teacher would say in the morning, he would say, stand by your desks." So we would all get up and we'd stand by our desks like this. And then he'd say, our Father, and we'd say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we'd go through the Lord's Prayer. All of us except Mervyn Joseph and his friend. They were the two Jewish boys in our congregation, they would stand and they were respectful, but they didn't say the Lord's Prayer. And that was the act of worship. That I didn't know what we were saying. I knew the words. But I didn't know what they meant. So I wasn't really praying with my understanding. I was only praying with my understanding. Voice with my larynx and my lips and my tongue, but I wasn't praying from my heart because I didn't know what the words meant. It starts, Our Father, that's the first thing. And that was a shock to the 3,000 because many of them were Old Testament believers. But is there, is there a prayer? Is there a psalm in the Old Testament that starts our Father? Do they familiarly address Jehovah, the Creator, as their Father? Very, very rarely, if at all. But now they are taught, when they join this fellowship and listen to the apostles' teaching and break bread, they call God their father. You've got to be converted and become as a little child and God your heavenly father. It says it like this in John's Gospel. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the the authority, the power, to become the children of God. To those who are born of God. He gave them who receive him, who say, Come into my life. I don't want to live apart from you any longer. I want to live with you, near you. And they receive him into their they don't keep him saying, Back off, don't mess with me. But they receive him and they're given the right to become the children of God and to call God their Father. There are favorite times when this Lord Jesus comes into our meeting and he walks the aisle and uh, he'll sit there and there and there and uh, he'll just nudge us. Wake up now. I'm, I'm talking to you. My son, give me your heart. I want you to give me your heart, he says. And, and we know. He does. And we do give him our hearts. And we become the children of God. And he becomes our father. You make that commitment. You ask him and you, you keep asking him until you know in your heart that he's taken your heart and he's become your God and father. So there's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer has got to say six petitions. Three petitions are about God. And uh, three petitions are about us. It's sort of, that's a simple way of looking at it. First three petitions, they focus on Him. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in Those three. And then the next three are about us, about daily bread and forgiveness of our sins and doing the will of God and being kept from temptation. That's the order. I think of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer like um, parents who have got growing children who seem to be shooting up. And so they buy clothes for them one size too big because they know in six months they're going to fit them perfectly and in a year's time they'll have outgrown them. And so um, the Lord's Prayer is like that. You know, I've repeated them, the phrases, the words to you, and you you know them. And now you're understanding more and more about them. They fit you more. You're more comfy, you're more aware of what those words say. Well, the first petition is, hallowed be your name. Um, Imagine someone... One night, three o'clock in the morning, he comes with a paint can and a paintbrush. And he writes on the wall at the end of your street, your wife's name, and he adds, is a slut. And suddenly rings your bell in the morning, you know what's down there, not what someone's done. And uh, the police are called and they want to know. Has anyone seen anything? And a CCTV camera may have caught somebody. And uh, then uh, that person can't say, well, they're only letters. They're only words. I've never touched her in any way. But you've hurt someone that you love very much. They've called someone a horrible name that you adore and your children adore, and your friends adore. And They don't value that lovely name that means everything to you. And so it is with this petition. When we hear people say in Welsh, yesi, or do, do, or yesi, grist, or they say in English, oh my God, It's an arrow in our hearts because that God is the God who loves us and has blessed us with the best things in life. He's been so good and and faithful and sweet and tender, a God to us. The grandest things he's given us in life. And when his name is mixed with awful other swear words and mocked, then we want to cry at times. And sometimes we are given an opportunity to say a little word, and usually not. So Jesus says when you when you pray and you begin by thinking of him and wanting his name to be exalted and magnified. You want his name to be great. You want all the boys and girls in school, all the students at the university, all your neighbors in the streets, all of ABBA to have a reverence and a knowledge and a love for the living God. And you find that in the Bible, don't you? When uh, Moses uh, was confronted with God speaking to him, he, he had to take his sandals off his feet because it was holy ground. When Isaiah saw him high and lifted up in the temple, he said, woe is me. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. When Peter saw... Jehovah Jesus in the boat. He fell at his feet. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When Saul of Tarsus saw the great light on the Damascus road. When John John saw him on the Isle of Patmos. He fell at his feet as if he were dead. God so great. And when people uh, say, well, why does God want our worship? Isn't that a something that's unnecessary, that he, he asks us to love him and serve him, then I'd say, well, listen to what Isaiah says. Listen to what Moses says. Come, here's Peter, here's Paul, here's John. And they'll tell you, when I met the Lord, I was overwhelmed. I could hardly breathe. All the strength went out of my legs. I fell down at his feet. I was overwhelmed when I saw him. So great a God. How can you, how can you think of not giving him your life and all that you have and all that you, you are? So when we pray for his name to be hallowed, we're praying that all the world, all of Aberystwyth, Caerdyddion, Cymru, the British Isles, Europe, Africa, Asia, the Americas, Australia, every one in the world, seven thousand million people, should know. This God, that the blindness should be taken away, that they hallow his name. From now on, we pray for every area, all the stars of soccer, all the royal family, all the figures that are so familiar to us, the news readers on television. We want them all to be brought low and to be humbled before God, to hallow his name. That's what we're praying, firstly. And then we pray, then, secondly, that that your will be done. Um, Fifty days earlier, the will of these people was that Jesus would be crucified and killed. That's what what they wanted and that's what they got. They killed him in the most cruel way. Now, 3,000 of them are saying, Lord, may your will be done by me in my life. every Christian year looks ahead and he says what I want in the future is your will. I want to do your will in the future. Now, we think of that in two ways. We think of it firstly in the revealed will of God in the Bible. And the Bible in the Ten Commandments and in the Sermon on the Mount and in Romans 12 and Ephesians 5 and 6 and the last chapters of the of the letters, and in the letter to James, particularly in all those ways, he's telling us how we should live. That's his will for us. He's telling fathers and mothers and uh, uh, husbands and wives and parents and children and bosses and workmen and preachers and church members and elders and deacons how they should live and how we should behave. That's his will for us. And so when we say, May I do your will. We say, give me strength to obey what you want, to live the kind of life that you want me to live. That's one way in which we are to understand it. And the other way we understand it is that um, all we get in our lives is the providence of God. All right, it was the providence of God that uh, on this Sunday morning you should be here and I should have a, a word about praying to speak to you. No one can take the providence of God from you, I'm saying, so often. And so um, I'm instructing you about praying this morning. And then this week, whatever happens, Monday through Saturday, it'll be the providence of God. If finally the National Health Service writes to you and says, come in and have the operation, wow, Great. That timing is from God. You go back to the first source. And that's true of the troubles that come into our lives. When the Lord Jesus at the end of his life then was facing all that lay on Golgotha for him, the loss of his father, the judgment, the condemnation, the sufferings that he had to bear. Remember how he prayed, Father, is it possible for this cup to be taken from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's a good prayer. We just don't take troubles that assail us um, in our stride and forget about them. We long that those troubles should come to an end. And Is it your will that I should have this worry about my family, about my health, about my children, about my job? And we pray, we we spread it out. Don't don't let this happen, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that is the foundation of Christian contentment. That will make you then a happy boy, a happy girl, a happy man and woman when you go to God and you say to God, "I want Your will above everything else in my life. I want." To do your will. If I know something is your will, if my loved one is going to get incurably ill, if I know that I'm going to face death in the next year, it's your will. And I'm not going to repine, I'm not going to be self pitying, I'm not going to be bitter because it's your will. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. So we are saying two things when we pray that prayer. And as these 3,000 were taught by the apostles what prayer was, the first thing is that we do the will of God, the revealed will. We, we believe and do the Bible. And then secondly, that we accept God's good and perfect will for our lives. Thirdly, give us this day our daily bread. Now there are some holy people and they will say, um, I never pray about myself when I pray. No, I never ask God. I, I, I just bow before God and I worship God. I never ask Him for anything about myself. Well, that's foolish. Because Jesus told us when we are to pray, we are to go to Him and we are to say, I've I've got a family to feed. I've got people in need who depend on me. I need health to keep working and to go out and shop and and work in the home and look after my husband and, and my children. And we're praying for all those things, aren't we? When we say, give me this day our daily bread. And we're asking for wisdom about what to do with our money and with our health and with our days. And Jesus told us, you must pray that. And you pray, give us this day our daily bread Um, with thankfulness because of the great promise that uh, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We believe that. And so... um, those people so horribly destituted by the earthquake in Nepal over the last uh, four weeks, and a second one coming now. Poor people. And oh, what help there is. We know of a, a team of men that have gone out there and Christian people who are ministering in the name of the Lord, and they are come to meet them. And uh, God will provide the needs of his people there. Particularly, our God supplies all our needs. You know, there was a a woman who, she had no money and no food left in the house. And two naughty boys were walking by her window and they heard her praying. And she was telling the Lord how she was now wholly dependent on him. That he would supply her needs and so they thought they'd play a prank on her and they went down to the grocery shop on the corner and they bought a loaf of bread and a pint of milk and they crept back and they leaned through the open window she was on her knees and they put on the table the milk and the bread and then they waited and she woke up and she saw the milk and the bread there on the table, and she gave thanks to God for it straight away. And they popped up and they said, silly woman, it wasn't God who provided it for you. It was us. We did it. We went down. And she looked at them and she said, well, I don't know who the messengers were that God sent to provide this food for me, whether it was the devil or not. But he gave this food to me. And so it is that God meets our needs in many ways and helps us and helps us through our friends and provides for us through our enemies even. God provides our needs. Give us this day our daily bread and we cast ourselves on him um, Wise men came and they brought gold and silver and myrrh and frankincense and they gave it to Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born and soon Herod was out to to kill them. And off they went to Egypt, penniless. And Mary had gold and frankincense and myrrh, didn't she? She was able to trade and buy food for the journey and for protection on the journey staying in a little inn on the way God provided Mary with what she needed for the future God will provide for your future and so you pray daily bread now I need this and the next thing is forgive us our our trespasses and it's not that God is indifferent to how we live and what we do, that he looks at us and shrugs when we hurt people, when we are cruel, when those we love are the target of our silliness. And we go to him and we say, forgive me my trespasses. And then Jesus says there, if you remember the reading in Matthew 6, that we are to forgive those that trespass against us. Our our sins against God are like Everest. And the people's sins against us are like a molehill. And God has forgiven us so vastly. Surely you can forgive people. Surely you don't keep a score of grudges of the people that have offended you. And you don't say, I never forgive. I hope you never die if you can never forgive. Because you are meeting a God to whom you are giving an account and the God who has been, you say, so rich in mercy and forgiving you your sins, then he is rich in mercy and changing your hard heart and helping you to forgive those that have sinned against you. And finally, he says, lead us not into temptation. And so, I don't know what's lying before you this week. I don't know, you may be alone with a member of the opposite sex. There may be a a drawer open with money in it and no one around. You may stumble across a a website where there are unspeakably awful pictures. I don't know what lies before me or you this week. And so we pray, lead me not into temptation. Don't, Don't let me hurt your name. bring shame on the gospel by how I live there are certain trials that come into our lives that are if they came to us we'd, we'd be gone we couldn't stand we'd fall if certain temptations came and we're praying that the Lord will spare us that the occasion will be removed from us that there'll be a disdain and a horror in our hearts that will make us resist that temptation. That's how he answers our prayers. We go to him and we say, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. You pray those prayers. If you don't know how to pray, think about every phrase. Meditate on it, our Father. Isn't it wonderful that I can call you my Father through Jesus Christ? Hallowed be your name. Think of how wonderful his name is and your longing that that name... Go through it and meditate on it and turn it into prayer. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us. Make us a congregation of praying men and women. Make us a church that's a praying church. Help these four marks of a gospel church to be super evident as never before in our lives. Help us not to faint... Take from us distracting cares. When we confess our sins, help us to do it in a way that doesn't just hang around and think about those things. Oh, blood of Christ, cleanse us. Oh, power of Christ, come into us and keep us. And make the churches of Jesus Christ in our day praying churches. We ask in the Savior's name. Amen.